Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this week I really wanted to do something on Darius the Great. He's been suggested a lot. He's been on our list. I think well, he's since, so great. He is great. He's been on our list since the Porus and Alexander episode. The Battle of the Hydaspes. Yeah. yeah. So I was looking over Darius's life, trying to figure out something cool, and I found this historical coincidence that was just too good to pass up. Just last month was the 2500th anniversary of the Battle of Marathon. How how great is that? Um, probably most of you have heard about the Battle of Marathon. Here's the legend again, if you need a little bit of a refresher. After the Greek city-state of Athens defeats the Persians at Marathon, the runner Pheidippides is dispatched to deliver the news to Athens. He runs approximately 25 miles at top speed, delivers his message, and then collapses on the spot and dies. And it's the birth of the 26.2-mile marathon. And interestingly enough, we have a running store in Atlanta named after Pheidippides. It's where I've always gotten my running shoes. So I think that's probably where I first heard this See, I'm little a big story. Peach running company girl. I, oh, yeah. I, I, I will fight you. Well, you're, you're missing out on your Greek history then, at least. But we've also been editing marathon content. So I really had to go with this. Yeah, lots of it for the site. As you know, we work for HowStuffWorks.com and we did this huge suite on marathon content. So we were reading it for weeks, all this running stuff. I think I've even had the Pheidippides myth pop up in an article. So anyways, that's what we're going to be talking about today. But there's a lot more to the Battle of Marathon than that little Pheidippides story. And because the topic was inspired by Darius, I thought it's only right for us to start with the Persians and Cyrus the Great. So the Persians under Cyrus the Great had created this enormous empire, but you couldn't rule it centrally because it was so huge. So they had these governors called satraps. And speaking of huge, this empire eventually covers Asia Minor, Southwest Asia, even as far as the eastern boundaries of Europe. So try to get this in your mind for a minute, just to understand the scope and the, the stakes of what we'll be talking about. Exactly. So in 522 BC, Darius I, who's later Darius the Great, succeeds Cyrus. And he's not supposed to. It's not like he's his heir or something. And the story behind this is a little sketchy and kind of up in the air. There's definitely some revisionist history at play about what really happened. But according to the history by Herodotus, who also gives us our first existing account of the Battle of Marathon, we'll be talking about him later, Darius was uh, suspected of plotting as a youth. So he was sent out. And after Cyrus's son and heir dies, he comes back to town. You know, there's this power vacuum and he's hoping that he'll be the guy to fill it. Supposedly, he kills Cyrus's other son, Bardia, who had himself usurped the throne. So try to keep all this straight. Then Darius defends the murder by saying that Bardia wasn't really Bardia. He, I like this. He was this imposter. Royal imposters keep popping up, usually <laughs> with the Russians. royal imposters. Yeah, so it's nice to have it with the Persians as well. So Darius is essentially making the claim, well, I was killing an imposter, and really I'm just restoring the royal dynasty back to power because, you know, I'm from this minor branch of the family. I think we call that spin. Yeah, I, I think so. But what a great story. 
So anyway, now Darius has a hard place to run, this giant empire. There are lots of revolts throughout it, even revolts in Persia itself with another man who's claiming to be Bardia. Lots of royal Everyone imposters. Everyone wants to be Bardia. <laughs> but Darius and the generals suppress all of them in Babylon and in Egypt. But now he needs to strengthen these frontiers and make sure that everything is copacetic with the nomads. So he's got to cover a huge area to do this, to the Caspian Sea, the Indus Valley. He can't chase the European Scythians very far because they've already torn up the countryside and there aren't any supplies to do so. And there's also some expansion. Yeah. So, I mean, at a certain point, you can't just, once you've stabilized your existing empire, you need to start making it bigger. Conquer again. Yeah. If you're going to support Persepolis and the whole empire, You need more cities and more territory and more tribute money pouring in. So Darius is casting his eyes about looking for places to expand. And it's Greece seems like the natural place to go because all the approaches are already in Persian hands. The Black Sea is in Persian control. And it just seems like the natural buffer to Europe or maybe even more than a buffer, a good way to get to Europe. Plus, it's kind of the only viable option because to the east was India and Asia and that was just a little too risky and unknown for Darius to go. You know, that's a good way to overextend yourself, go invade Asia. To the west was the Libyan desert, which invading invading the desert, kind of hard going. And to the north, we had those crazy Scythians. So uh, tearing up the land, Greece seems like the best way to go. But Greece is sort of messing up Darius's plans because it's made of all these independence-loving city-states, which really do not want to become part of the Persian Empire. So let's go back to that satrap setup. We think it, it goes without saying that some of these local governors were complete tyrants. But of course, you'd almost have to be if you wanted to enrich your own person and still squeeze out a tribute for Darius from your people. And it's also not surprising that some of the Greek cities of Asia Minor who were ruled by Persian satraps might envy Athens because they have their famous social experiment just starting up. So the first descent comes from the island of Naxos in 502 BC, and the Naxians end up drawing in this other city, the Ionian city of Miletos. And it's not quite in the way you would expect, though. It's not two cities working out this nice deal with each other. They want help from Miletos's despotic ruler, but he's a sneaky guy, and he thinks that he can maybe play the Naxians and still be loyal to the Persians. So the ruler agrees, but he really plans to let this rebellion play out, see what happens, and then take the island for himself when it's all done. So to to further that goal, to make it happen, he enlists the help of Darius's own brother, who's the satrap of Lydia, which is Turkey today. But then everything falls apart for him. The plot fails. The double playing doesn't work out. He's left owing Darius, and Darius's brother promises that he can't deliver anymore. He has one option, and that's to rebel himself. So his revolt starts a whole chain of revolts, which is very annoying for the Persians and for Darius. And Athens gets drawn in in 499 BC when it, along with Eritrea, starts meddling in all of these Ionian revolts. So Athens is a target now. And after the rebellions are squashed, 
Darius gives his son-in-law command of his fleet to go sack Athens and Eritrea, but the fleet is lost in a freak storm near Mount Athos in 492. So they have to send out a second fleet in 490. They managed to... BC time. 490 (laughs) BC, yes. They managed to sack Eritrea and enslave all of its citizens. And Darius figures that the other Greek cities probably won't want to meet with this same fate. They're not going to want to face off with the Persian forces. So he sends his emissaries to ask them to surrender, and plenty of them concede, most of northern Greece and Macedonia. But Athens will not, and neither will Sparta, who actually kill the emissary. Sending a a bold message. So, okay then, Athens is next on the list, and the Persians get ready to fight. They've come over in 600 ships, and their strong suit is cavalry, so they want to pick a place where their cavalry can really shine. And they select the plain of Marathon, which is about 25 miles outside of Athens, as we mentioned in the Pheidippides intro. But it's this wide open space, you know, the perfect place for a cavalry to to charge. And the Athenians send a runner to Sparta to get help because they're thinking, okay, this is about to go down 25 miles outside of the city. Uh, we need to get some reinforcements quickly. So this is where Pheidippides actually comes in. He does 150 miles in two days. Um, by his own account, Pan stops him on the way and asks, As in the God Pan, Pan, stops him and asks, why hasn't Athens been honoring him like they should? And he says, okay, I promise, you know, if this all works out, we'll really take care of you, Pan. But I'm wondering if this is maybe hallucinations from an ultramarathon, ultramarathon, Pheidippides. I don't know. Well, the Spartans say that they'll help But only after their religious festival is over, and unfortunately for the Athenians, this is a multi-day religious festival. It's going to keep going and going. The answer is basically, no, we won't help. (laughs) Yes, but only when it's convenient for us. So our Athenians have three choices. They can meet the Persians at Marathon. They can try to defend the pass at Polini, or they can stay and defend their city. They choose Marathon. Yeah, and that's because the Athenian Navy, despite its later reputation, is not that strong at this point. It never could have matched Persia's. And a siege of Athens probably wouldn't have worked out very well for them either because it would have been quite easy for Persia to cut off the food supplies. You just would be left to starve within the city walls. So Marathon is actually looking like a pretty good option. I mean, as far as their options go, the Persians have their backs to the water and the Athenian flanks are protected by swamps. So you can't, you know, come around behind them and get them. There's just one thing that can't happen. The Athenians, who are mostly hoplite infantrymen, can't attack while the Persian cavalry is in place. They will absolutely be crushed. So as long as they can avoid that, they have a fighting chance. So we should probably give you a little explanation of what a hoplite is before we go too much further, since they're the key to this whole thing. It's pretty much what you'd imagine from a movie with Greek soldiers. They're infantrymen with nine-foot spears. They have swords. They have a big breastplate and huge shields that, in this case, are emblazoned with Pegasus, which sounds like The makings of a pretty good Halloween costume. And they're grouped in these phalanxes of men, eight by eight. And these are very maneuverable and strongly defended on all sides. Yeah, they can link their shields together. Yeah, you've got a pretty good thing going here. 
So after the Athenians get to Marathon, both of these camps wait and wait and wait for nine days, which again reminded us of the King Porus battle, the Battle of Hydaspes. Yeah. So if you're wondering why we're waiting for nine days, the Persians don't think that they have anything to lose. So the longer they stay looking intimidating, the more frightened the Greeks will become, you know, psychological warfare. They'll get all wigged out. Exactly. And the Athenians are hoping that the Spartans will show up because the Spartans are pretty darn scary. And, and if they have they a come, reputation for it, even in Persia. Exactly. They might frighten the Persians. So both sides are hoping to scare the Dickens out of each other. But Greece might also lose more cities while everyone is just sitting around. So they do have something to lose. And they have a meeting. Should we attack or should we wait? And the 10 Athenian generals vote straight down the middle for fighting versus waiting. So someone has to make a decision. Okay, so the general Miltiades puts the decision to Callimachus, who's a civil official, and he votes to attack. So four generals hand over their command to Miltiades, and we're going to go. There's going to be a fight. The Athenians are going to charge. So we're going to give you some numbers before we start. And there's a wide discrepancy Numbers here. may lie. <laughs> um, the Athenians, 10,000 hoplites plus 1,000 non-Athenians who've come in to help. Uh, the Persians, the number in some places is hi- as high as 48,000 or just 15,000. So depends on who's, a big difference. <laughs> who's there. talking there. Um, but before dawn on September 17th, the Greeks learn that the Persian cavalry is absent from the field. And remember, it's the cavalry that they just absolutely cannot face, at least not without the help of the Spartans. But we don't know why. No, that's kind of weird. We don't know why the cavalry is gone, where they are, are and then the boats, are they off, you know, maybe reembarked for a possible attack on Athens, some other reason. But why ever, you know, whatever the reason is that they're gone, they're gone. And now is the time to attack. According to Herodotus, the Greeks advance at a run. They're about a mile away. The Persians get ready, but it's clear that the Athenians will be there soon, much sooner than they were planning on them arriving. So it, it seems kind of like a suicidal mission on the Athenians' Yeah, they're running part. straight at us. Are you kidding? But then the Persians are starting to realize, Oh, actually, they're going to be here really soon. (laughs) And judging by later excavations of the Athenian dead, the Persians were showering arrows at the running infantry, um, but not many of them are hit. Yeah. So the Athenian commanders also have a very good understanding of Persian battle techniques. And Miltiades even fought in the Persian army. So they know that the Persians arrange their fighters with the very best guys, the true citizens in the middle. And then they put their conscripts on the edges, on the flanks. So these are people from the states they've conquered, probably not terribly invested in the fight, maybe just trying to get out of it alive. Key point for you. So the Greeks put their best haplites on the flanks and thin out towards the middle because, of course, they don't have enough guys to have a, a universal coverage across the field. Right. So they're the putting all theirs on the edges so they'll be fighting all the conscripts. Exactly. So the Persian center, which is its strongest point, comes through cutting down these thinned Greek forces, thinking this is going to be so easy, not hard at all. Meanwhile, the heavy Greek flanks, where all the best guys are and the 
most guys are, are tearing through those Persian flanks of conscripts. And the conscripts at this point are starting to break formation and flee, trying to get out while they can. And instead of pursuing these fleeing conscripts, the Greeks turn in to help their men in the middle. So the Persians are now surrounded on three sides. Think of the Greeks creating a sort of pocket. Persians have just fallen into Persian pocket. And the Persians completely panic. Their best weapon, bow and arrow, is useless in close combat. Their wicker shields have nothing on the Pegasus shields, <laughs> and they start fleeing to their ships. Some Athenians get into the ships. They're killing the Persians aboard. Or they pull in the ships from the they water. They pull them in? Yes. Like with ropes? <laughs> they pull them in. <laughs> Getting it in just pulling? Okay. And at the end of the day, we have 6,400 dead Persians and only 192 Athenians have perished. And finally, the Spartans show up. and After everything's over. They're not even completely convinced that the Athenians have won. They tour the battlefield and they realize that the Athenians did win. They're, oh, great, guys. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> Thanks for the help, Sparta. So the Athenians, though, can't just rejoice in this triumphant victory, they've got to get moving to defend Athens. So they march double time back to the city, get there before the Persian ships, and we have Athens coming out on top. And they turn this victory into a major propaganda. They put it in every available news outlet they can find, um, just sort of building it to mythical proportions almost immediately. They even used the spoils of the battle to build the Athenian treasury at Delphi. But the win allows them to continue this little political experiment that they started not that long before. And it also makes them a lot more confident, probably a little too confident in the <laughs> resulting history. But when well, it's pretty obvious that the Persians are going to come back. They're not yeah, going to be defeated in this one battle and then stay away forever. But their third expedition is delayed for about 10 years. There's a rebellion in Egypt, Darius dies, and that gives Greece plenty of time to get ready. And we also have some random facts on Darius since we're not doing a biography this time. We're talking about an actual event. We had some things we didn't quite know where to stick in. Darius was known as being quite the administrator. That's probably his best reputation, even though he did help expand the empire quite a bit. But he standardized the coinage and the weights and measures for the empire and lots of exploration on new trade routes. And actually, before these Greek invasions even started, he had sent out ships to thoroughly scout the coastline. So, you know, he hoped he knew what he was getting into. And then another interesting point about him, he did respect native religion. So it's not like coming in and forcing everyone to be Persian. You still had to pay your tribute, but he was cool if you worshipped your Egyptian gods. He went as far as to build a temple to the god Amun um, and helped restore other religious sites in Egypt. And he's the one who authorized the building of the temple at Jerusalem. Which has come up in a couple podcasts at least. And as our last note on the Battle of Marathon, the Carlos Museum at Emory University hosted a marathon through campus to commemorate the anniversary Apparently, Sarah and I both sent the link to Candace Keener, who used to host the podcast, but there was no response. Got a very unenthusiastic response. <laughs> but for the rest of you, you know, maybe. And you can send us your marathon stories. I had 
thought about doing a half last year and then realized I can barely run a mile. So we're postponing <laughs> that goal for a little bit. I've done one half. It, it was fun. Way to one up me, Sarah. <laughs> well, I don't think <laughs> I'd ever, at me. I don't think I'd ever go for a full though. And definitely not the real Fidipides length of 150 miles. Maybe next Unless year. Unless it's in a car. <laughs> you can work up to it, Sarah. So if you have some story where you can manage to tie in history and a marathon, a personal story, one, will be really proud of you, and two, will read it. Email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. But that brings us to our listener mail for today. Today's listener mail is highly unusual in that it speaks. Do you want to listen to it? I do. No! <laughs> and we have been hitting this in the office. Some might say a little too much. Yeah, like our editorial area is usually pretty quiet. Lots of writers and editors hard at work. Except for Jonathan Strickland with tech stuff, <laughs> who's very loud. And except for the no button. which Yeah, it's this little red button and you push it and it has several varieties of no. It's perfect for editorial meetings and maybe podcasts if Sarah suggests something I don't like. I think so. So we got this from Amy and Vinny in Connecticut and I think they manufacture these no buttons. But um, they mentioned that They've thought of some good times when the no button would have come in handy in history. You know, just times when it would have been best for someone to say no. And I can think of maybe a few just from this episode here. Like, how about Spartan? Do you want to come, <laughs> come help us fight the Persians? No! We don't have a maybe later button. I think they suggested a few of their own though, didn't they? They did. Um, let's see. Abe, I hear that there's a good show playing at the Ford Theater tonight. (laughs) Want to go? No, no, no. Goes on like that. It could have changed the course of history, and perhaps you can imagine how our day went on all the examples we've been thinking of. (laughs) So what are your best no responses that would have changed the course of history? Email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we have a Facebook fan page. And if you'd like to pretend you're Fidipides for a little bit, we've got an article called How Ultramarathons Work that you can search for on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 